Trash genre cast. We're assuming you're tuning right back in. Part two. We we've, we've never done this before, and this is the second part of our Spiders Men uh, trilogy, uh, looking at the Sam Raimi Spider Man trilogy. I guess we'll begin with introductions, and then I'll say a word or two, and then we'll get right down to business and give you some analysis. Uh, who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon and Dalton. If you want this film, it'll cost you a hundred dollars. <laughs> very, very good. Uh, who are you on the right, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and the sky's the limit, up to $7.84. There you go. And I am still Dustin Sells um, from last time. So I'm just going to. true. Go. You haven't changed. You gonna... haven't changed a bit, Michael Sahlberg. No, nope. not, not a bit. Not one bit. You are into this character. I. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly so. So uh, there you go. If you're tuning in for the very first time, uh, this is a rare, um, so rare that has never happened before, nearly extinct, last of its kind, two-parter, until we do another one, of uh, where we uh, do the thing that we always do with the show when we give a uh, quick synopsis, we do a thumbs up, thumbs down review, and we play a game, and then we get right down into analysis. And we always tell people that we avoid spoilers for the first half of the show or so. And then once we get down to business and do that analysis uh, – uh, it was, it's a place in which all spoiler bets are off. This week, um, we just start with that. So if you, yeah, have, if, you, if you want our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, go to part one. Yeah, which was last week. And, and our delightful game. Also fun. Also last week. And so check all that out then and there. Correct. Um, so we're going to get right into this. I guess um, we will open with one bit of uh, sort of housekeeping business that we should do every time we do this. And that is just tell the dear listener how they can be part of the conversation with the rest of us. Oh, do we have to? I, well... I mean, they might want to know. Okay, yeah. We're this on, might be a first-time listener listening. You're absolutely right. Listener, if this is your first time, fun episode to start with. Uh, so good choice there. Uh, second of all, yeah, we're on all the social media bullshits. Um, you don't need to be there. It's a sad place right now. Um, it's it's like looking for water in Mad Max land. Uh, not not our social media specifically, just social media in general. Thank you for clarifying, uh, Dustin. No, our, our social media is, uh, is a bastion of hope. And a sea of lawlessness. And uh, I don't know that we're winning, but we're there. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, that's going to be at good underscore trash. That's everything good trash media, not just this show. But we also try to keep you updated on our other show on the network, um, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, which uh, I just listened to uh, uh, Jesus Christ Antifa Super Soldier uh, is the name of the episode they just did, which is a fun name. That's uh, accurate. With their guest, um, Spencer Hicks. Uh, really great episode. Um, I, I don't plug the the other show on this show that often but uh when i hear a really good one i feel compelled to so that's a great one to check out if you've wanted to see what the praise down with heath and alex is all about great episode to jump in on um other than twitter um again the place for all things just find us at good underscore trash we're also on facebook you don't have to use that in fact i'm gonna go ahead and encourage you not to because uh zuckerberg's bad um, there's more news in the week about how they're terrible uh, not that twitter's any better but you know we're on there but I cannot discourage you from – I cannot encourage you to stay off there more. But if you can't fight the itch, 
It's going to be facebook.com forward slash GTM. We're also on Instagram. We're doing a little bit of that. That seems like a fun place to be. So Arthur's been doing some fun stuff over there. Arthur, what's that uh, handle over on Instagram? I forget. Uh, it is at Good Trash Media. That's it. Pretty simple. Oh, there you go. That's a real easy one for you, listener. Uh, finally, if you want some long-form feedback sent our way, that's going to be Good Trash Genre Cast. Uh, that's the show-specific email, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for your long-form feedback. Uh, we also would really appreciate uh, a rate, review, and subscription uh, at your um, however you get this in your ear. Um, it really helps with visibility. Uh, I know we tell you that all the time, but uh, if, if you've been putting that off, just do us a, do us a solid. Hook, hook us up, man. Give us that sweet, sweet review. Um, and, you know, as we always like to say or have liked to say lately, um, you know, tell somebody you like about the show. That's the best way that you can spread the word. Um, if you if that's what you're into, if you don't really care about talking to us, you enjoy this as a passive listening experience. I totally get it. I've never written into a podcast, uh, but if you like what we do and want to help support us in a way that doesn't cost you any money, you could just tell your friends about the show. Finally, um, if you really do want to give us money, cool. That that makes you a very nice person, and we appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash gtm. All the info on the cool, fun stuff you get if you give us money's over there at patreon.com forward slash gtm. All righty. Well, um, guys, I've been making omelets, and I think it's probably time to get down to business. Bringing some analysis, uh, for real this time. Or attempting to. We're going to do our best. My analysis, right out of the gate, uh, Spider-Man 3 teaches us that revenge is not a dish best served cold, but a la mode. I, I, Harry really seems to be enjoying that revenge pie. He really likes so it. So good. <laughs> and so, uh, there you go, dear listener. We're going to do this thing that we do. We're going to apply some analysis to this film. And I know there's a handful of things that are just sort of circulating in our minds right now. I guess the first thing we want to talk about is auteurism. Auteurism being the theory that the director is the primary artiste involved in the uh, making of a film. It is a problematic thing insofar as there are many, many, many people involved in the making of film. And their particular artistic touches and flourishes can be seen, particularly with uh, one young James Franco saying so good uh, regarding that pie a la mode. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a good example of it, Dustin, because it really buys into a kind of a uh, just a, a hierarchical assumption of like, oh, there has to be somebody in charge. That's the only way anything gets done. Yeah, and, and it, I, that's an, an antiquated and yeah. inaccurate way to look at film. I think because film is such a uh, collaborative art form. I mean, the auteur theory in a lot of situations would ignore you know your cinematographer. It would ignore your writers. It would ignore your you know your production managers, your, your set designs. Yeah. And all of those people, you know, uh, a psycho here's a good chance. Uh, you know, I, I, I would hold uh, Hitchcock up as one of the true auteurs that you could look at as a tour. But even in Psycho, you know, Bernard Herman had to convince him to use that score in the shower mm-hmm. scene. And that's pivotal to the effect of that film, I think. And so auteurism is a very dangerous route. People like to throw around that word auteur with any indie director who's made a movie or two. You know, Ryan Johnson or... Uh, Colin Trevorrow before he made Jurassic World, you know. Whoever the darling of the moment is. Yeah, right. right. Half the uh, Marvel directors at this point. I mean, you really need probably six, seven films from a filmmaker before you can even think about making that call. And, and, you know, I think you've got directors who can become auteurs after working, even in working in the studio, you know, they can become auteurs later if, you know, they've built cred and they've got control and earned Final Cut and things of that nature. Uh, But it's just such a hard term to throw around nowadays. 
Um, I wouldn't even throw it around for somebody I like really like uh, like a Denis Villeneuve. I mean, who's made enough films at this point that you could probably start to try and assert that. But I mean, just looking at different uh, uh, composers on his films, uh, I mean, he's paired with Roger Deakins a lot. But the two of them find different things to do. I mean, every movie that shot. I first go, man, that looks like a Roger Deakins movie, and then go, oh, well, if you look, there is the, there's those Denis flourishes and those things they bring out of each other. Aaron Sorkin's a, an example from the writing field because a lot of yeah. Sorkin's films, you know, you, you look at the writing before you look at the, the director a lot of the times because he has a very particular way of writing. And so the auteur theory itself is just flawed. And, and looking at this uh, Spider-Man trilogy, you know, I think we looked at the the writing credits and Raimi's really only worked his, his hand in the script on the third film is yeah. where he has a writing credit with his brother, I believe. Correct. Um, the first film was David Cope, who had been working from a script that James Cameron had actually presented uh, several years prior. And there was a lot of rewrites on, you know, Cameron's work and Cameron's pitch and, and uh, some of that stayed and some of it didn't. But uh, to say, you know, Raimi is the the author, the auteur of this trilogy is kind of a stretch, I think. But I have to say this much. It is a useful and a handy way to categorize film. Yes. Um, I think I recommend for anybody who's interested in movies in general and wants to sort of deepen their understanding, who wants to uh, dip their toe in cinephilia, uh, the love of cinema, if, if that's what they want to do, uh, going through auteurist realms. Is that the love of having sex with films? Yeah, that would be a cinephile. A cinephilia would, would be film fucking. And <laughs> I cannot, <laughs> listener, I cannot discourage you much like facebook i cannot discourage you from doing that more i mean if that dvd hole is accommodating don't, go for it don't do it don't put it in you don't put anything in it uh just just i'm just picturing a naked person rolling around in like reels of 35 hey don't That's, knock it till you try it's it duck, it's duck it's duck tales, but christopher nolan's just diving into a big old pit of kodak just a naked christopher nolan jumping into a pool of 70 millimeter kodak <laughs> <laughs> D- Dustin's absolutely. Where was right, this though. going anyway? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to get us back on track. Yes. I, well, I, I said cinephilia, and somehow it became necrophilia. Oh, that's yeah, you, yeah. you wanted to recommend. I want to recommend the auteur theory as a way in because you're absolutely you, right because you can in a Hitchcock identify uh, certain tra- traits and tra- tropes that are being used. You can, you can see things that are moving across the filmography of a Howard Hawks or a John Huston or even you, here with Sam Raimi. I Sam think Raimi, especially yeah. Yeah. all of his films being genre films are super accessible. Um, and I think even if you, well, even his, you know, more uh, schlockier uh, early fare with Evil Dead, while that might not be as uh, pleasant to the eyes for some viewers as the Spider-Man trilogy, I think there are a lot of flourishes, uh, especially if you look at something like Spider-Man 2, the scene where they're trying to remove Dr. Octopus's arms while they think he's dead. Uh, that sequence turns into a horror sequence that is full of visual references to the Evil Dead trilogy. Absolutely. The, these, these POV attack shots, the ways in which the arms move are very similar to the ways in which some of the puppets in those films move. Um, so there are definitely uh, autoristic flourishes that you can see in this film. But again, as Arthur mentioned, these films especially were definitely a collaborative process. I mean, one of the most iconic things about these films is the Spider-Man suit. And that's yeah. not a thing Sammy creates. That's yeah. the job of the costume department. And we know that Sony had a heavy hand in the production and, and the way the trilogy actually worked out in in, in part three, at least. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on, you know, with that thing. But as you have already mentioned, uh, Dalton, there is definitely uh, the Raimi touch is there. We do see that. And uh, we do see those techniques sort of, you know, work uh, in in this film that he applies in other places. And so I guess I want to, uh, first of all, just open up the conversation with auteurism and say, where do we, how do we place this film 
in his filmography? Where do we see it in evolution? Where do we see it in de-evolution? Do we see it as uh, some places where his sort of artistic style is trying to break out against studio uh, intervention? Or do we see it as a place in which he's um, applying his techniques to a studio film and thus sort of making a studio filmmaking his own? I, I think it's the latter. I think it is him. I, I think, you know, he loves to play with tropes and different kind of visual flares and things like that. And, you, you know, something like Quick and the Dead where he's kind of playing with that spaghetti western style and those aesthetics. And, and yet it's so Evil Dead, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing he's doing here. You know, he's got a kind of a standard studio action film, uh, but he's really putting his stamp on it in far, as far as the way it's, it's got this kind of campy tone to it, this kind of cheesy uh, schlockiness, I, I would say, uh, with some of the elements. Uh, and I think that's why, you know, last week I, I mentioned this was a very comic booky film, uh, very yes. almost cartoony in nature. And, and I think that's a lot of Raimi's influence here. Uh, that dance sequence in three, I think that's purely Raimi. I think it's a very Raimi thing for him to do. And, and, and that kind of layer of camp that's on all of these films. And, and two, has it, I think, to some degree, but two feels a lot more polished uh, than I'd say one or three. Um, and I don't know, you know, if that's a studio thing or if that's him just trying to, he found a lot more heart in that film that he could kind of ground himself and decided to be more reserved when he needed to be, uh, which emphasized those flourishes like in the Doc Ock sequence uh, when the the horror story goes down. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's been a while, you know, since I've seen some of the other Raimi stuff, uh, you know, like Drag Me to Hell or the Oz, the Great and Powerful, which would both hit after uh, Spider-Man. Uh, but I think that lead up, you know. There's uh, only two films after the trilogy at this point. Yeah. I know he's got a couple in the works, but yeah, Oz, the Great and Powerful in 2013 was the last one. Um, and, you know, we kind of see him move into that studio style when he does, I think, uh, uh, the, a simple plan, and then he does the gift, and he does uh, a, for love of the game, right? And oh, I forgot about for love of the it's game. for the love of the game. A Sam Raimi film, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that well, movie, and, and I had thing, no idea. That's the thing that I think's really interesting about the '90s for Sam Raimi, right? Because you know he he cuts his teeth doing, uh, you know, a lot of. Uh, underground stuff in the 70s obviously and then becomes huge in the 80s with uh, the evil dead films but you know huge among film people i mean there's still six yeah. years between one and well, two. he's the proto marvel director right i mean yeah. you look at Favreau, who got to start with swingers and then started working more into the studio stuff and you you, you look at uh you're looking at disney on the whole ryan johnson's another good example um can't think of anybody. Taika Waititi. Yeah, Taika with, Waititi. Uh, what yeah. we do in the shadows and the hunt for the wilder people, getting him that. that Ryan, uh, Ryan Coogler. Yeah, Coogler. Coogler oh, yeah. is totally an indie filmmaker who Co- makes it. Yeah. Who yeah, immediately jumps to studio filmmaking yeah. uh, off of how how good Fruitvale Station was. But I think the '90s are interesting for him because you see him really right out of the gate. Dark Man in 1990, Bridge, and I'm pretty sure that was a studio film. Um, but bridge that gap of his interests of horror and of, you know, hero films. Yeah. Um, because, you know, Quick and the Dead's not a superhero movie, but it's still a, a hero-centric tale, yeah. right? And I'm, It's think, kind of a superhero movie. It is. And honestly, the Evil Dead films, especially Evil Dead 2 and then Army of Darkness in 1992, right after Darkman, those are kind of superhero films. They turn the Ash Williams character into a superhero of some sort. Darkman is Raimi, too. Yeah, you didn't realize yeah. that? Yeah. I've seen, like, ten Sam Raimi movies. I, I was looking at his filmography. I think I'd seen everything except he had, like, two early films. I don't even know if have been released. The at- yeah, you know, Crime and, Wave in 85. I've yeah. never heard of uh, anybody having But that. I think For Love of the Game is the only one I haven't seen now. I, I think I've seen it. the rest of the filmography. But yeah, I'm I, wanting to see it. I should have had you bring it. I would have, yeah. I just didn't even know it was, yeah. yeah. 
but yeah, which the, is weird. The '90s are interesting for him, I think, because again, Quick and the Dead, as Arthur already mentioned, I think is really full of his touches. Uh, and the Simple Plan is kind of a departure for him, right? It's a yeah. Coen Brothers movie, and then uh, Love of the Game, which I don't know anything about, but other than the it baseball is, movie, it is a very, very sort of standard um, romantic sort of cool. over over decades kind of uh, romance tale with yeah. baseball as a backdrop. It's a it's a Kevin Costner vehicle. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, the auteurism of that film seems to me, if I were put on the horns of an altar to decide, I would have to say it's it's an it's Studio. a it's a it's a Costner movie. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, uh, you, you know, there's, you know, we keep talking about the auteur, but there's also the the metier on sand or the, the, just the journeyman filmmaker. Yeah. And I think a lot of the 90s, that's where Raimi's filmography really Absolutely. seems to fit as more as he's just a journeyman just kind of going around and a hired gun making these films. Knows he can get studio money now, but is like yeah. still being careful about projects yeah. and stuff, I think. Uh, and then The Gift, which I've never seen, is in 2000, right before he gets the Spider-Man films. And um, I know that's a little bit more of a horror film, but it's more restrained. Yeah, it's got some supernatural elements and it's, like clairvoyance it's, it's, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, more of a thriller, I think, yeah, than a flat-out horror is. film. So I, I that, that would be – I honestly wish I had, had time to catch up with the, the Gift to see where that fits. But I think the Spider-Man franchise, as it fits, really – changes the game for him because again and not always in good ways because again he's only done two movies after doing these three films and he didn't do anything between the spider-man films it's spider-man one spider-man two spider-man three there are no side projects it's not like uh joss whedon doing much do about nothing between the avengers movies and that might be part of what makes raimi's filmography interesting is it shows other filmmakers who are going to be going into big budget stuff that um it, it might be a signal to them like hey don't forget to do stuff that you're passionate about outside of these big money projects yeah. because I think we see a lot of that with these directors who are getting these big gigs. The ones that I I, get, uh, I think Taika Waititi is a good example because I think Wilder People happened after he got the Thor job. Um, yeah. I feel like they were probably they were roughly in production or closing on one and then starting on the other. I don't know when yeah. Wilder People finished I, up. I don't but, know the timeline well enough. Yeah. But again, I think I think that is the way some of the directors are going to stay successful if they work in the studio system is – get money for themselves, yep. know that they are a name that people, they can use to attract and go do those yep. smaller projects. And I, I, I hate that Raimi hasn't done that. Well, and he's, he's mostly done production work, which I think is cool. That yep. he's at a point in his career where he wants to help other people. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I don't want to project too much uh, sort of burnout on him, but you know, there's definitely a case that could be made just in terms of his output. Well, I mean, uh, if you don't count his shorts, uh, if you, he's done a lot of TV work, but uh, if you count his shorts, he's got 34 director credits right yeah. now. As opposed to fifty-two producer credits, so I think I think burnout's a fair argument. I mean, and, and I think a lot of it, you know, having to succumb to the will of the studio. You know, you're working with Sony, who's very mm-hmm. demanding about this property because it's worth a lot of money. There's a lot of investment there, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of history with Spider-Man Three. You know, he doesn't want Venom. The studio wants Venom because Venom sells tickets and Venom sells merchandise. And you know he oh, doesn't really want that. Oh, the action figures alone, man. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the superhero film has always been tied to you know the merchandising. You know uh, a lot of action blockbuster cinema has. Um, well, yeah. since Star Wars. And then uh, you know, and he was set to do four, and then he was like, "Nah, I'm, you know, good. Let's go. Let's do something else." And then he does Drag Me to Hell, but then he goes back and he does work for Disney and does Oz the Great and Powerful, which isn't super well received or you know and so. I, well that movie's got no brains no courage and no heart <laughs> and i, I full really, straw i really hope that that's not that because that feels like a, th- a gig he took hoping that it would get him other gigs yeah um or maybe it was just like they're gonna pay me so much goddamn money i can't say no yeah. but I, I would love to see him direct i know he's got stuff in development but i really would love to see 
where he's at now, being, you know, uh, much older, having learned a lot, not much older, but, you know, I mean, older than he was when he got these big studio jobs for the sure. first time. Well, it's been 20 years, so you can yeah, say much older. You're right. I mean, he's 20 years older. That's a significant chunk of a person's life. And I'd like to see all this time he spent as a producer, how that's changed his style as a, as a director. Yeah. I would be really curious to see that. And I, I think the Spider-Man franchise fitting, you know, we kind of assumed what would be the halfway point uh, of his time as a director, but really the quick and the dead for love of the game, that became his halfway point. The mm-hmm. Spider-Man films have at this point kind of become the end of that career arc as it stands right now. And, uh, that sucks, uh, because I think he is a, a really interesting filmmaker and, um, these while these films are good, uh, I would I think I would rather watch the Quick and the Dead or the Evil Dead films or the Gift, which I haven't seen before I revisit the Spider Man movies. You know, yeah. I, they, they there's that Sam Raimi Sam Sam Raimi stamp as we've talked about, but they are definitely not his films the way some of those other films quite feel that way. I, I think. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I tell you what, tonight I'm going to go home and watch for the love of the game again. Yeah, because I, I with I'm, that knowledge, with that knowledge, I mean, there is a moment in it where there is a little bit of that style. There's a moment in which Kevin Costner is uh, opening up. Uh, he's a pitcher, and uh, the 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 conceit of the game, he's going to throw a perfect game, and I don't think that's a you know big spoiler or whatever. But um, he's at uh, he's at uh, the Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. and he's a Detroit Tiger. And uh, he goes into pitch, and of course, um, as the game begins, you know, New York Yankee fans are famous for their um, lack of politeness to the opposing team, I I think we'll say. And so you hear all of that sort of stuff going on, and then you hear Kevin Costner's own voice inside of Kevin Costner's head say, clear the mechanism. Every there's a there's a there's a sound cue where it, you know sort of like the the THX sound going down and cool. the, and the entire um, everything um, goes soft focus all around him except for himself hmm. as as that goes on so it's like this sort of sound and uh, everything goes out of focus except for just himself the mound and he throws the first pitch and the first pitch you know the the ball hit in the mitt is clear, crystal clear but you can't hear anything else. Uh, which is really pretty rad, and I'm like, that's a that's a pretty interesting stylistic flourish. Yeah, and I, I just wonder how that would fit in with stuff that I remember from the Evil Dead films, which I've seen like umpteen times. Um, so I, I'm curious to see where if that film at all um, actually plays like a Raimi film with that knowledge going in. I don't know how you guys feel about this as a transition, but I think it'll work. Um, I, I think it's interesting to talk about thematically. Now we've t- we've talked yeah. a lot about form and craft. But his evolution as a filmmaker thematically, I think this uh, is an interesting trilogy, and will get us more into that that deep analysis that we're going to move into from here. Yeah, there is a real flawedness to his heroes, right? Mm-hmm. That his heroes themselves are – they are heroic, and they are um, always finally heroic. But um, there is a real debate and usually a long section in which they fail to be heroic. You know, you know, Sharon Stone in The Quick and the Dead would be a great example of this. I mean, she, uh, well, because she's really capturing that Clint Eastwood character archetype, right? Yeah. Like, she's all about revenge and vengeance and just angry and then uh, sort of loses her way, you know. She, she has a lot of doubt about her, you know, her skills and whether she wants to kill or not and, you mm-hmm. know, having to juggle that weight of her conscience, essentially. And then there's Ash. And there's, yeah, who is an unrepentant uh, shithead. Uh, b- but they find a way to make that part of his charm and part of what makes him a flawed hero. And then there's Spider-Man. And there's Spider-Man, yeah, who is, you the, know. The the only 
inherently good, like, even Sharon Stone's character is, I, I think, inherently good, but inherently selfish. Yeah. And we don't really get that from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man until the film that he writes, Spider-Man 3. Yeah. And then there's Kevin Costner, who is a complete butt to this woman. Oh, is he? Yeah, for a while. I mean, he's like the sort of uh, Prince Charming, and then he's like fails and and flops miserably they get back together and he fails and he fails yeah. and it's sort of this you know continual sort of trying to find his way into how he can have a relationship outside of baseball yeah and, and bill paxton and then a simple plan you know yeah. he starts out very well intentioned right with this you know with finding a this plan money, with a very simple plan uh and and it just snowballs into something outside of his control and he doubts and he gets paranoid you know so he's extre- he becomes extremely flawed you know what what was this well-intentioned seed you know burrs this evil in his life that he he can't outrun yeah so i i think wow what what a great way to to sum up that movie very quickly arthur uh i i think looking at these films we've talked about i think it does really thematically uh in his career arc make the spider-man films interesting because i do you guys feel like uh, in one and two we get any flaws from peter really i I think in one, it's that struggle, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, you know, after the initial bite, he's, yeah, he's greedy. He wants to be the cool kid. He yeah, wants the cool true. car and it costs his uncle's life. And then, you know, he learns that he's got to try to figure out how to balance, you know, this. And he's going to hurt somebody, you know, he's going to hurt himself or he's going to hurt his loved ones or he's going to hurt, the, you know, the New York if he doesn't step in to save the day. Which is part of where I guess and hurt. The- Go ahead. I was gonna say, and hurts Mary Jane. Yeah, yeah. Know, repeatedly. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's where the arc in Spider-Man Two comes from. You're right, Arthur, because as th- or as Spider-Man One ends with him realizing that uncertainty, I think that is where Two grows out of. Right with the Spider-Man and more stuff. Yeah, and, and it just it's a natural lead into Three, where the ego can't be contained anymore. Now that New York is screaming his name, and there's shirts of him everywhere, and you know, he knows what it's like to be in the public spotlight and he wants to make sure Mary Jane understands that he knows what it's like to be where she's at and to be in the spotlight and to be on the stage and to be the focal point. And he's that, that ego builds, uh, and aided with the black costume, it becomes the kind of crux of the film for his character, uh, as he is just becomes this egotistical jerk that no one can stand. Now, Dalton, do you have some cookies with nuts? Yeah, that I don't have cookies with nuts for you. I hate. Can you make me some? Poor poor Ursula. No, I will not. (laughs) You get back in the kitchen. I am not a pushover. (laughs) I will not let you push me around. I am not going to let my love for you make me do things I don't want to do. I am not Ursula. I learned my lesson from her. Thank you, Ursula, for being a character that teaches us how not to be when we love someone. Yeah. But you're right, Arthur. That's when the ego comes in because he can't let Mary Jane have the spotlight for a second. He can't let any conversation be about her career and her uncertainties and her struggles because it's all about, oh, I have this problem. I can fix this problem for you. No, Peter, that's not how it works, man. You're not fucking fighting Dr. Octopus. Your, your partner is trying to tell you something. Yeah, oh, well, that's and that, that plays into some, some male stereotypes, which as well, we will right? get yeah. into that yeah, later. Fixers yeah, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think we'll talk more about how masculinity features into this film uh, as we get further into the to analysis. So, okay, well, before we get into that, so we 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 frame this in one set of industrial conditions, right? The industrial condition of the director, the director who brings a certain well level of direction to the final product, right? That's what they do. Their job is tone management, and, as uh, and, they often say on Film Spotting, which I think is a great way to put it. And, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we definitely see that this does uh, place itself well within the Raimi filmography. But I also know, and I don't actually know this information at all myself, so I'm actually waiting for you guys to regale me with information and fun facts. Um, you guys know quite a bit about the production history of uh, the Spider-Man. And uh, so um, tell me, what can the industrial conditions, uh, what can knowledge of just uh, the production history dealing with Sony, dealing with just the money, the box office, all that stuff, um, how can that also help frame our understanding of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with these uh, set of texts? Well, I, I think it's important. I don't know if we have younger listeners, but if we do, uh, I think it's important to remember where this comes in the the arc of studios making superhero films. We do right? have younger listeners. We do? We, okay. have, a, we, have, a, we have a set of 14-year-olds. Oh, your, your, your children don't count. No, no, my son and his friends listen to the show. Oh God, I'm so sorry, boys. Uh, I, I am. Well, no, parents of these children, I am sorry to you all. Oh, oh, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I don't know these parents. Hey, yeah, parents, your your kids are going to hear me say the f word, bunch. <laughs> but if, if you, hey Isaiah, don't do that. Go ahead, yeah, Isaiah. You're not allowed to use that word yet. Not around dad. Anyway. I'm, a, I'm allowed to because I'm almost thirty fucking years old. <laughs> And I have health insurance <laughs> that my dad doesn't pay for. Um, and you have your own ha- – oh. No, shut up, Arthur. We don't, oh. we don't need to talk about my weird transitory living situation right now. He uh, does live with his parents. Oh, fuck. Why, in the basement. I, they He's don't, in the basement. They don't have a basement. But if they did – He spends all day on Twitter. If they did have a basement, I would live in the basement. Complaining uh, about Star Wars. Look, it's a couple of months. It's, look, it's not important. We're going to talk about Sony. <laughs> So tell me about production are, history. You guys are owning and dunking on me on our podcast, and I don't like it, even though I know that's literally what the show is. Yes. It's 90% <laughs> us just ragging on Dalton and 10% movies. <laughs> totally that. So if you've ever thought to yourself, well, it's weird that it took Spider-Man so long to get into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's important to remember that back in the early 2000s, even back to the late 90s, when Marvel first started having their characters adapted with Blade in 1998, I think is the very first Marvel film I can think of. Well, I mean, you've got the earlier stuff with, you know, Corman and things like that. That's The Fantastic Four and Captain America. You know, Marvel in the, I guess, late 80s, early 90s really hit a financial tough spot. You know, they did The Punisher in the 80s, but... um, uh, they had to start selling off all the rights to their yeah. characters. They, so were, they were Sony, licensing them. Yeah, they had no control. Sony got their hands in it. Fox got their hands in it. Everybody got their hands in it. I think Namor is at like Columbia University. You know, something yeah, like right. everybody got a hand on, on uh, Marvel. And that was all motivated by technological innovation, the the mm-hmm. sort of development of CGI. The ability that, to make superhero movies. To make, yeah. I mean, we've been doing this since 93 with Jurassic Park, but it was so expensive. And uh, over the course of the next seven years, those technologies became less and less expensive to use and produce effects that were believable. And yeah. that is where this sort of gold rush happens on the studio's part to buy these properties, knowing that they could pull off those believable sort of massive motion sets that CGI required, and or superhero films rather require. Yeah, and it starts in earnest with Blade in 1998, X-Men in 2000 over at Fox, and I, f- I forget who put up Blade. New Line, I think. That's You're right, it is New Line. Um, I can see the logo in my head, actually. Um, and then Fox got with X-Men, and then Sony with Spider-Man. And all three of those films, Spider-Man most of all, but all three of those films were hits. All three yep. of those films made money. Spider-Man made a lot of money. Um, and all of this gold rush starts, as Dustin points out. And as Arthur mentions, it's important to remember, comic books weren't selling that well in the late 90s. There had been this big bubble burst with people overbuying comics because of the collector's boom. Uh, comic book publishers convincing uh, Joe Schmo that if they 
bought one of these limited pressings that they were going to be worth $1,000 someday, and comic books started to make a lot of money in the 80s, and the bottom fell out of that market. So Marvel is strapped for cash and starts licensing the rights to these films and having no control over what's happening with them, and that's a big part of where they're at now is trying to you know get Spider-Man back in the MCU because they know he's one of their most potentially profitable characters, and they're tired of Sony losing money and them not seeing any of it. Um, so it, it's, it's important to keep that in mind that Marvel's not involved with this. Marvel is just the stamp. I, I don't know if they had any creative control at all. I think they probably had a list of things they were not allowed to do. I think Avi Arad's a producer here, executive he producer. Is, yeah. He's yeah. from Marvel, right? He is. I thought he was a Sony guy. Is he a Sony guy? I, I think he's, he's a Marvel. Sony guy, but you could be right. But this is, yeah, this would be for... But Marvel, I mean, Marvel's hands in here very much. I mean, this is a Sony production. Yeah. There it, is the Stanley contract uh, cameo uh, stipulation yep. there. Uh, and I think this is the first time, because I don't, I don't think he's in the X-Men stuff. He's not in the X-Men not stuff. The he's, stuff. He's not in Blade either. No. Yeah, so I think this is where we get that this is the first, running jack. First in, well, yeah. Especially because this is a character he's very famous for creating. Um, I think that's a big part of why that comes in and becomes a facet of all of all the films that are made under the Marvel brand, even if they're not in the MCU going forward. Um, not any longer, but at that point, because there's not honestly that many the characters they don't have the rights to anymore other than X-Men. the X-Men. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, with that change, I, I think it, it's really interesting to see when you have somebody like Kevin Feige come in uh, to Marvel in the mid-2000s after the Spider-Man boom, and they're like, all right, screw this. We're making our own movies because 2007's Spider-Man 3, the next year is Iron Man. It is the beginning of superhero movies as we know them today. Um, and, and I think it's probably important to include the Dark Knight in that conversation too, just in terms of uh, where certain studios have decided that making very serious superhero movies is the way to go. Um, but it, it's important to remember that Marvel isn't really involved with these films in any capacity, uh, and it is just Sony trying to figure out how to make money. And that is how we get to Spider-Man 3, which had a notoriously troubled production. Uh, I mean, even with one, though, which was stuck in developmental hell for years, uh, James Cameron presents the script that has, like, uh, a weird sex scene in there, and yeah. Peter turns into a... He, he goes into his mutations. Like a with, full sp- arachnid man. Yeah, there, there's all kinds of crazy stuff in that original script yeah. that got cut. I think it was Sandman and the Vulture of the Villains or something like that, or Doc Ock and this. I think it's Doc Ock and the Sandman or something are the villains. Yeah, there's a, there was a ton of rewrites, a ton of... You know, they'd get pretty far into production. It, it was almost as troubled as the famous Superman Lives production. Yeah. It just eventually... They never got quite that far into production. By the time they did get that far... They had Sam Raimi on board, and everything kind of came together. Uh, but even with the huge success of Spider-Man 1, there's contracts dispute, contract disputes going into Spider-Man 2. Uh, as we, I think we might have touched on last week, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal almost takes over the role going into Spider-Man 2, uh, which I think is really interesting. That's the, I don't really know any more about the production history on 2. Other than that, Arthur, do you know of anything off the top of your head? No, I, I think I read some script stuff about you know the production, and then you know they were going to go with... Uh, a couple of, I think Doc Ock, and there's a second villain. You know, there's a lot of other stuff, and then they honed into just doing the Doc Ock story and, and focusing on that, which is a smart direction. It really is, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that one goes pretty smooth as far as you know, getting everything out there. I think they'd found a rhythm and, and they were ready to go. Uh, and then it's not till three, and when and starts stuff starts to fall apart again. Yeah, I mean, the wheels really start to fall off. There's huge arguments about um, who's going to be in the movie, what their roles are going to be in the movie. Um, as we touched on last week, there there was some drama um, with uh, Sam Raimi finally being like, okay, yeah, uh, Kirsten, we're going to get you a lot more to do. You're not going to be the damsel at the end of the movie. And then Sony decides that they don't like her not being the damsel at the end of the movie. And uh, apparently she was not happy about that, and I cannot blame her. That's some bullshit. Um, 
to be told. And again, that, that was a, a sounds like from what I've been able to glean, Arthur, I don't know about you, but from what I've been able to glean, it sounds like it's, we're, we're talking about a lot of broken promises on Spider-Man 3, which I think yeah. is why everybody was so pissed off. Uh, even though the movie made money, it wasn't very critically well-received. There was immediate backlash to some of the the choices that we now in 2018 kind of like uh, 11 years later. But at the time, the jazz stuff was not well-received. Uh, emo Peter was not well-received, despite how amazing it is. Venom was not well-received. Terribly. Topher Grace. Yeah, Topher Grace. I mean, from the moment they cast him, people didn't like it. And yeah. even that, I think, is an interesting thematic choice that we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I guess what I would say in sort of like a theoretical summarization of uh, what we've done so far is that what we're when we're talking about these kinds of texts, and I think this applies even to indie cinema, it's easier to sort of frame it in terms of the big blockbuster things because the dollar amounts themselves, the audiences themselves, just the numbers of zeros, right, are just larger. But we're talking about mass-produced industrial art and uh, that that is the primary set of, uh, you know, contingencies and uh, concerns that are, are, are being applied to the production of these films. It is not necessarily just about uh, realizing the vision of, say, a director or of an actress or of anybody else. It is, it, is, it is primarily about what can we do to sell this well? What tests well for audiences? How well can we market it? What, what sort of action figures can we use? How can we slap this on a lunchbox? Those kinds of questions. And, uh, again, just get, getting more and more butts in the seats. Well, and it's important to remember to the extent – it's easy to just focus on the studios as the bad guys, as the money people, right? And a lot of the times that's a valid argument, but even – I just listened to an interview with Paul Schrader recently. He's you know on the uh, promotion train for First Reformed, but he talked a lot about in his career when you go to write a movie as a writer, a big part of what you think about is how can I sell this? Yeah. Is there enough? Is there enough blood and guts? Is there enough sex? Like, I mean, the, is it entertaining enough? Whether it's you know schlocky or not even schlocky is the wrong yeah. word, uh, salacious. Whether it's not salacious is kind of irrelevant. Is 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 it exciting? Uh, and it talks about in this interview. It was really interesting uh, about the changing system with the big indie studios like A twenty four. It is easier to get some of those movies made at this point, uh, but it's never been quite the problem. And you know, Europe being famous for its art cinema, well, it's because they have you know. Fund, taxpayer-funded arts programs, and that a lot of that money goes to making films. But all of those things, even then, are, are talking about um, focusing and creating films that fit a particular taste culture profile. Exactly. When the studio money gets involved, you have to fit a certain taste culture profile. So, for instance, like, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of an A24 production. Oh, you're talking about even within that. It, it, okay, yeah, gotcha. like, a, like a ghost story, right? Yeah. The, uh, the uh, Numi Rapace um, dead for most of the movie. Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Oh, gosh, I do that yeah. all the time. I know. I, I was just waiting. <laughs> Casey Affleck, yeah. Casey Affleck film. Um, that you know that film is entertaining to a specific set of audiences. You're absolutely right, and I right. think First Reformed is probably less so though because it's going into a kind of uh, that that sort of um, you know it, it's the touchstones for that film aren't you know, are things like Ahasar oh, Balthazar. Geez, that's a hard thing to say, and uh, you know those kind of well, really, that's the that's the art cinema, the real crowd, existential. Th- I, yeah, but it's kind of it's it's art cinema to the extent that it stops being entertaining in the way something like a right. ghost story is. I think, but there, there's a, there's again this sort of cultural cultural cachet that you get. You get yeah, this, you know, Bordeauxian sort of uh, cultural capital by being a person who likes O'Hazard and First Reformed. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's a good I point. mean, A24 has a very built-in audience. That's true. I mean, At this point, you're right. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, I mean, again, so these these industrial conditions are not just simply like we're rehearsing what people are doing. You know, okay, we've invented CGI now. Okay, we've managed to negotiate contracts now. We've bought certain you know intellectual properties here and there. Those things are not just uh, side issues. Those things are uh, primary drivers to the uh, art forms that we end up receiving, and then the, and then we apply textual analysis to that. And I think that's all useful and helpful and stuff that we're going to do here in just a few moments. But let's not for a moment put that sort of industrial condition stuff just to on the, the big side. studios yeah and, and, and or no, to the side you're to right. the side or and, and and frame it only as big studio star warsy sort of star warsy no that's, that's fine an adjective no it's good uh, <laughs> all words are made up absolutely um, and so that sort of stuff is very, very applicable here. So let's go ahead and get into some thematics now. Uh, I think the big first thing that we want to talk about, we've already been sort of hinting at it anyway, um, gender, masculinity, um, and the uh, roles of women in uh, cinema in general and superheroes in particular. Um, I guess we need to talk about Mary Jane. So, yuck. Um, Kirsten Dunst was not happy that she had to play a damsel in distress in the third film. And the reason why being that that's all she does all three movies along, right? And so, yeah. Um, can we talk about that for just a moment? I've got a couple other things I'd like to say, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, well, the... the you know, it, it's easiest to talk about that that stuff in Spider-Man Three, but it does start as early back as Spider-Man One um, with the, and I think we might have alluded to this on Part One, but with the very famous uh, upside down rain kiss, which is like you know one of the iconic visuals of that film. That iconic visual is preceded by her almost being assaulted uh, by a bunch of dudes, um, and and putting your your female protagonist or what's the word for the secondary antagonist or protagonist secondary protagonist yeah we'll just call it that i know there's a word for it but that's fine uh, I, I didn't know there was I, I learned this recently it's a whole thing second bill hmm. anyway <laughs> yeah i mean uh, obviously norman osborne uh, uh willem defoe gets second bill because he's the bad guy but i mean she's well she gets fourth bill because she's a woman uh that's mm -hmm. what it comes down to but having the female lead of your film under the threat of sexual assault is never a good look uh, it just isn't guys uh especially when it's you know film written directed and you know produced by men it's just not a good look it's insensitive and leads to moments where uh mary jane's super excited that spider-man beat all these guys up and is super stoked to make out with him uh literally seconds uh if not at best minutes uh after a potential assault was averted it, it's just not a good look and it's a heavily sexualized scene because it turns into a love scene by the end of it and uh you know that is something that I think studios have gotten better about, especially specifically within superhero films, because I think superhero films have gotten less sexual. Um, they've realized that the market is really for children a little bit more, and they've started to to realize it's not so much for 15-year-old boys as it is for 11-year-olds in general, just all 11-year-olds. And I think that's what the MCU has realized to an extent, because um, with that being kind of the benchmark and tone setter for superhero films, the Marvel films, I think you look across all of those, there's love interests early on, but now that this point in the MCU, not really. They're kind of incidental at best, even within uh, Black Panther where, you know, Lupita Nyong'o's character is a pretty cool character. They don't really focus on her relationship with uh, T'Challa that much. I mean, it, ex right. it exists. Um, there is some drama to it. There's a little bit of, like, this uncertainty, but it's already an established relationship when the film starts. There's not, like we're getting more and more heroes not with love interests but with people who are already like in a relationship with them um or in the case of you know something like thor 
they just realize, wow, we really don't know what to do with Natalie Portman's character, and it feels like a waste of money to hire Natalie Portman and not give her anything to do. So they just got rid of the character. Um, so, so it is interesting to watch that evolution starting in one with that really kind of gross scene that, uh, again, culminates in her um, being held hostage by the Green Lantern, or the Green Lantern, the, the Green Goblin, <laughs> not once but twice. The greatest uh, it, crossover of all time. Yeah. Ooh. Um, yeah, not once but twice in that film. And then again in two, uh, she's frequently kidnapped yep. by Dr. Ock. And in three. Yeah, and in three, yeah, so multiple she, kidnappings. There, there was a moment in the third film, um, and I want to talk about the relay my watching with my youngest son. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, this one's eleven, and so we're watching the the the, the, the third film, and uh, this is after everything's gone down, and Peter comes back to the jazz bar, and this is the uh, sort of uh, reconciliation scene, mm-hmm. and he, he shows up, and my son says, "What is he doing there? Oh no, she's going to see him, and she's going to let him have it." And and just waiting and like no this is oh man you, why are you even there Peter you shouldn't you shouldn't even be showing up and I and I go just keep watching keep watching and, and when they take hands he goes what and I go you're right son she should never take him back after all that dude you're absolutely right your child sees us in the film doesn't yeah uh, and that's that's pretty cool first of all but uh, I'm proud of well your boy. child are probably children are probably more woke than. Most of America's youth. That's fair. Uh, and that, I think that's a big part of the problem. Uh, I think in 2018 with the films, even the big studio films coming out now, we have uh, really started to reckon with some things in our culture that we just were not reckoning with, not, especially not in mass media culture in yep. 2002, 3, and, or 2002, 4, and 7. Um, I will say, though, I think 7 does have some interesting things to say. And again, this film, look, if we're going to talk about uh, – gender in these films all we're going to talk about is how these films fail women i do think it is interesting and the film does have some potentially progressive things and interesting things to say about masculinity as it pertains to being a good person uh, and how that can go bad especially in spider-man 3 but even in spider-man 1 and 2 i think um, the villains are very much rooted in their their very uh, prototypically masculine pursuits of dominating their fields, whether it's business with Norman Osborn or science with Otto Octavius. Yeah. Uh, these are men who are driven by their their desire to be the best. By the, which and again, ger- anybody journalism can, with Eddie Brock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And anybody can want to be the best, obviously, but it is you know a very known cultural trope that this is a, a pretty toxically masculine thing. Is this need to dominate uh, other people around you and show that you're better than everybody? I, I, I think Sandman even takes that to the more primal level because he he's just trying to be the provider. Yeah. You know, that he has to oh, be. Oh, yeah. That's like right. ur-manhood right there. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's the most primal variation on that where he is, you know, he's been told by society that the man is the provider, so he has to find a way to provide for his family, even if it, you know, takes him to crime. And it even circles back to some more positive figures in Spider-Man 1 with um, Uncle Ben having been laid off. Now, I think Uncle Ben represents a much less gross character by design, obviously. He is meant to be a, a yeah. moral paragon. Uh, and his depiction of masculinity is of being a good, uh, not not a good father figure, but a good parent. Mm-hmm. The, the, the masculine qualities thereon are only because they're raising a boy. But it is focused on being a good partner, being a good parent. Uh, and even though, you know, the need to provide does enter in, that is more a focus of this this working class family struggling financially right. than it becomes about, you know, this kind of potentially gross need to provide that we see in Spider-Man 3. And I, I think the film do a good job of showing, uh, with the exception of uh, 
Peter's homophobic taunt uh, at uh, Sawbone or Bonesaw. Bonesaw, uh, yeah. Ugh. Bonesaw is ready. It's good. It's playtime. Um, but aside from that, I mean, Peter is always punished for being a dickhead uh, mm-hmm. throughout all the films, but uh, especially in the, the with the loss of Uncle Ben in the first movie. Uh, and then again, we wrap around to Spider-Man 3, and that really does kind of become the crux of Spider-Man 3. And I think that's where the gender issues in these films do become really interesting is with that third film. So learn this, 14-year-olds. If you're a douche, your parents will die. Stop it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think that's always going to happen, no, but maybe. I, no, I, but maybe. But maybe. <laughs> so Sorry, uh, I couldn't help myself. No, you shouldn't have helped yourself. Uh, <laughs> Arthur, um, what do you think about Spider-Man 3? Um, I know we, we've all talked about how we think it's kind of maligned, but how did thematically this, this arc of Peter going bad and learning about his ego that you've already brought up, yeah. how, how do you think this factors into some of the, the gender stuff we've already been talking about? Does that work for you, the execution of that? Do you think that's, uh, you know, does that, do those themes have legs to stand on in that third film? Uh, I, I think it feels like the natural place for it to go, especially with Peter Parker. I mean, if you're looking just at Peter Parker, and I, and I really think that's who Raimi's focused on is Peter Parker. I don't know necessarily that Spider-Man's much focus for him, but I, um, I think he really does want to tease out and toy those kind of relationship dynamics. I mean, there are a lot of moments uh, in the film, uh, the whole trilogy, where that relationship between he and Mary Jane feels very real. Uh, we talked a lot last week about that, the the dinner sequence where he's going to propose and he has that very real, you know, moment of, oh, I messed up, but I don't know why. And there's that big fight, you know. And so... And I, to to the film's credit and to Ramey and uh, Ivan's credit, uh, uh, Sam and Ramey Ivan's credit, uh, I, I think it does a good job. Mary Jane is well-written in that scene. She yeah. doesn't come across... It's, that would be an easy scene for a male writer to write in a way that makes her feel like the bad guy. Yeah. And I think yep. they firmly have her as the moral She's authority the in, in that yeah. scene. Yeah, she, she is the person that the audience's sympathies are with 100%. Yeah. I think she's really well written in that I scene. Think, I think the movie does a great job of turning us against Peter Parker. Yeah. Uh, I think it does a really, which is tricky, but it works, I think. But I think, uh, you know, going to the ending where it just reverts back to this damsel in distress story, I think it cuts its legs out from what it's, you know, a very interesting story that has developed, you know, to this point. I, I love what they're exploring with with uh, Peter Parker because it's it's playing out that idea of with great power comes great responsibility. And so I, I think because of the way it plays out in, in the final product, it does kind of shoot itself in the foot. You're right. I mean, it spends uh, two hours setting up. This is what happens when you stop being responsible with your power yeah. and become a monster. Uh, and then, yeah, then she just forgives him. Uh, is, he says, I promise I'm good now. Yeah. Is the way out because of the symbiote? I think I think I don't I doubt that that was the intent originally, especially with all the stuff we talked about about you know uh, Mary Jane's character not supposed to having been uh, in that position at the end of the film. I think you're right. I think they end up using the symbiote suit as an excuse to make him good again when it's very clear he was breaking bad prior to getting right. the suit. But yeah. the suit sort of absolves him of of most of the responsibility. I think the film does a good job of setting up that he's become an asshole before he gets the suit, honestly. Because yeah. all of the stuff with him, uh, you know, making out with Bryce Dallas Howard in front of half yeah. of New York, that happens before he gets the suit. I mean, all of... Uh, I'm pretty, Yeah, he hasn't put it on yet, I don't think. Um, yeah, because that scene takes place with the red and blue suit. Yeah. I don't even think he knows the symbiote's following him um, at that point. 
So I man, that movie's structurally weird. It's yeah, and that's yeah. that's part of the problem. Though the film's so structurally weird that we had to sit here and think about. Wait a second, does he start getting bad before he gets a suit? And he does because the symbiote follows him pretty early on. Oh, super like early, first scene. Yeah, and then just forgotten about for a while. Oh yeah, well because they have you know eight other things to yeah. set up. Yeah, that's the big problem with this film is there's all this really interesting groundwork being laid, and it's so busy that as Arthur mentioned it shoots itself in the foot by the end of the film because it has to be like, oh, crap, this movie's two and a half hours long. we got to end it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just curious about, you know, how that's sort of plays in it. Let's move into a little bit more theory and uh, analysis. Uh, one of the most famous things about uh, the initial production of the first film is uh, the first trailer. And we talked about it a little bit last time that we were together. Um, how in the initial trailer, uh, this is uh, being uh, filmed uh, in, the mo- in the moment before 9-11, and uh, as the trailer um, is being produced, 9-11 happens. The trailer's out. It comes trailer's out summer out. 2001. Yeah, trailer's been Films out. Films and post. i probably done shooting at that point. I yeah. didn't check the dates. Um, but the bulk of shooting's probably done, and then, yeah, boom, September. And one of the major sort of motifs of the sort of last moment of the film to say that this is a Spider-Man movie is that, um, you know, bank robbers had used a helicopter. Yeah. And Spider-Man had w- w- weaved a web between the uh, two towers. And that was the big mo- the hero shot of that teaser trailer. Right. And they were like, oh, no, we've got to change this. And I want to talk about the film a little bit with regard to two of the sort of major sort of theoretical threads, um, no pun intended, uh, that uh, sort of weave together to uh, you know place this film in a conversation with 9/11. Now, the first thing is that we have to begin with Freud and Lacan. And Cyber why do we Mount, have to do that? Because I think the film is dripping with uh, sort of uh, don't say dripping sexual, when you're talking about Freud or sexual <laughs> sexual development, right? That Peter's in his room and For there's sure. gunk all over the room and there's strange things going on with his body and Aunt May wants to come in and he doesn't want her to. You're right. To it see it what definitely what becomes a puberty. <laughs> there, there's all of that that's going on and and of course uh, the other major sort of thing going on though is Peter's desire for Mary Jane. That is the the, the major sort of uh, dominating sort of uh, you know uh, bit of motivation for Peter Parker's character uh, throughout the films is that he he loves Mary Jane. He's always been in love with Mary Jane. Uh, she is uh, the 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 uh, petite object. Oh, she is the, she's she's the object he wants, right? The the obscure object of his desire. And and that's one of the problems with you know Mary Jane is fairly well written throughout the films i feel like uh but the film keeps putting in her positions where either the movie or peter are objectifying her right and him falling in love with her never gets fully fleshed out in the first movie and that really kind of sets the stage for all these other problems that come up in two and three is you're absolutely right she it really is about uh, him obtaining her as as an object and not about his love for her even though it says all the time well he loves her but it doesn't show us that it just tells us that Dustin, are you saying that if I'm repressed enough, I could become a superhero? I am not saying that. I am saying you can become a bad guy. Um, <laughs> because here's the thing. Incels. Uh, so, <laughs> boom. It, it, it's not repression. It's sublimation, which is another Freudian term. Okay. Uh, so what happens uh, with desire itself, and this is from uh, Freud's least psychoanalytical text and his most cultural text, uh, Civilization and Its Discontents, uh, where he puts, it, puts forward this idea, and we've talked about this before on the show, where um, we are full of desire, and if we were only living living out our id desires. If we were only doing what we wanted, uh, we would never build cities or make art because we'd be in the bushes eating and fornicating all the time. That's all we would do. 
And uh, so what we must do is we must sublimate desire, uh, sublimate our own wants uh, in, for, the, for the sake of the greater good, right? The greater good. The greater good. Thank you. And uh, I, I love how I can just say that, and I just know that's going to happen. Yeah, he's always going to get it before I am. Um, but that's what Peter does, right? So he is uh, bubbling with desire. He is oozing desire out of his wrists, right? And uh, these developed abilities are happening, and he's realizing he is the Spider-Man. And so he, at the end of the first film, has to sublimate his desire for MJ for the sake of the cause. Because the city needs defending. This is where 9-11 comes in. Yeah. This idea that there's a city that needs defending, and we may put the, put aside certain desires, certain ideals, certain values in order to make sure that there is security in place. I, I think it's important, really quickly though, to talk about those the, those frameworks you've mentioned that talk you know about sublimating desires and stuff, because these are frameworks that assume that sex rules everyone, and I, I think that's inaccurate. Well, see, sometimes. well, I think Freud would not say sex, but sex is sort of like the biggie on the eye chart that we You're can right. sort of see, and it's sort of obvious. But um, desire is a great many things. The, that's a very good point. You're right. Uh, I, I guess that's that's important to keep in mind, though that. I, I guess even I, I would say it assumes desire is the only it, it desire is the only main driver, right? And everything else is just fighting those id-driven desires. Uh, and I think I think those frameworks assume people's desires are less complicated. I, I think people uh, have more of a handle on their desires, and some of those frameworks give them credit for sometimes. Oh, I think that's totally fair. And I, I just wanted to bring that up as we do go ahead and pivot to. I think what is super interesting is how these ideas about putting aside what you want pertain to what's going on in America at that point. Right. And again, but the, the point's well taken is that, um, you know, we don't want to, you know, give ourselves over to this meta narrative either. Right. Um, but I so. think a lot of filmmakers, storytellers in general do, cause it's an, it's an interesting and easy way to inject themes into your film. Right. Because it's a pretty uncomplicated framework. Well, for it's handy for it, you know, yeah. for sure, for sure. And so what ends up happening is that he puts on the suit and he uh, goes into sort of secrecy. He, he sort of goes into a, a set of sequester. You could even say he's deployed uh, for a time uh, in order to, uh, you know, separate from this desire he's got for Mary Jane, right, uh, because he has to provide security for a city. This is, this is a 9-11 kind of situation in which uh, some, some terror has been revealed, and we need some extraordinary, exceptional man. And a man specifically, mm -hmm. you know, to be in place to keep you safe. An amazing man. An amazing man. A spectacular, even. You you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. Uh, <laughs> you want me on that web. You need me on that web. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the, the thing that happens, right? And so uh, throughout part two, he is continuing to do that and to not reveal who he is, to not reveal his true self, to not come back to that home. Because if he does, there's only going to be danger because th there's a need for him to be a kind of person who is uncivilized, who is not welcome in civilized society. And so it is. It's it's the Shane archetype, right? It's it's yeah. the cowboy. Boy, out on the frontier who can't settle down. John it's Wayne the Searchers. Mo Moses. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an archetype that goes back that far. And and so, yeah, and it, it is the, the narrative of post-traumatic stress disorder of, uh, of American soldiers who have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that. But they've got to fight this war on terror. They've got to go over this place. And they've got to do these terrible things, right? And it makes them sort of unfit for society. But not because they're bad guys, but because the the, the, the task is so great. And this is, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about an idea well, the of is so damaging. Right. And I, I mentioned last week that we're going to talk about Naomi Klein. I think I misnamed her Naomi Wolf, who's a different theorist. Mm -hmm. But Naomi Klein, uh, author of uh, The Shock, um, excuse me, um, Good Night. Shock and Awe? What is the name of the book? 
<laughs> That's terrible. I'm, I'm, I apologize. You had it last week. Uh, yeah, um, but it's, uh, the, the subtitle is The Rise of Dis- – Shock Doctrine. There we go. There, okay, the Rise you. of Disaster Capitalism. The use of disaster, mm-hmm. uh, either military coups or natural disasters, in order to implement massive changes. And this is where massive security changes can happen, where – there uh, has been an, an event, right? The 9-11 is the event in the Heideggerian sense. And What's that, that mean? Uh, Heidegger talks about th- that history doesn't move in terms of uh, natural progressions, but it moves in ruptures, right? Gotcha. The event. and uh, it, it moves in reaction to events. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and so 9-11 being one of the events, and that's a major oversimplification of Heidegger, who is um, a fascist. But right I- on this point. Um, I had no idea what you were talking about, so I assumed some of our listeners probably did neither. Thank you. You're welcome. You're too smart for your own britches sometimes. Uh, True. That's why they're so short. Uh, anyway, uh, what ends up happening... <laughs> Ten pounds of smart ass and five pounds of shorts. <laughs> <laughs> um, that That's what enables a uh, culture to, to sort of stomach changes they otherwise would not have stomached. They gotcha. would they could give up the security who would allow uh, surveillance, who would allow uh, the men and boys to be sent to these places to do these terrible things, to come back with these problems without sort of any need for recompense. Right. So that's all sort of at play in the first two films. By the time we get to the third film, we start looking at the story in terms of Abu Ghraib, that Spider-Man's a bad guy doing bad things. Well, and it even looks at uh, not just the people doing the things, but the people telling us who's doing what. I mean, you've got yeah. Eddie Brock as this figure, and again, from 2002 to 2007, we really have the evolution of the 24-hour news cycle, which, I mean, was already starting in the mid to late 90s, but 9-11 being the event that really kicked off the 24-hour news cycle in earnest, um, we start to already be talking in 2007 about the problems that making journalism a big business like that can have in the character of Eddie Brock, who is a liar and a fiend and doesn't care about truth or justice or the American way, um, just cares about making a buck, which you could argue is the American way. But uh, let's go ahead and assume all of our superheroes are good guys for a little bit. Uh, And that's why Eddie Brock is a villain, right? He doesn't care about uh, telling people the truth about Spider-Man. He just cares that J. Jonah Jameson is going to give him a bunch of money if he proves Spider-Man's a bad guy. But here's the thing with a Peter Parker who kills Sandman, even though he isn't actually dead, who thinks he kills the Sandman. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is a war crime. Yeah. It is absolutely extraordinary rendition and um, execution, yeah. right? It is It is uh, shades of Abu Ghraib. It is shades of Guantanamo Bay. I mean, actually, with the, the impact water has in that scene of his supposed death, you're absolutely right. It's, it's got all of that sort of stuff going on in there. But what we end up doing with the film is it creates a situation where sometimes – our heroes do bad things, but it's not really them. It is the evil around them that sort of sometimes that darkness overtakes them, but it doesn't make them bad guys, and we still need to stand behind them, and we still need to stand together. It, it reinforces those sort of standard nationalistic, patriotic things that it, if, even though it's a very, very terrible thing done, if it's done in the name of our security, of our nation, of our flag, of our whatever, then even though we would say individually we don't like an Abu Ghraib, even individually we may not like like Guantanamo Bay, the the, the sum total of uh, events that naturally lead to that are still somehow worth it. 
right and that uh, that there is this sort of uh, uh, political political reading of this film that it's it's about how uh, the war on terror is still worth it uh, the war on terror is um, justifiable and you need somebody who has great power and then uses great responsibility to do the bad thing well I, I think a big part of it though is uh, part of the popularization as of superhero films in general over the last 20 years um, but well let's focus on the last 15 years between you know spider-man and now uh, I think it's just as much as that is going on specifically force action in, in terms of going up against terrors in the world. Um, I, I think it continues with um, the real continuation of our spiral out of control a little bit as a world uh, because you have these superhero movies becoming more cheery, right? More bright, more colorful, and presenting the ideas of there have to be there has to be somebody out there who stands for good, and I think that's where the the ship kind of corrects itself a little bit eventually. And yeah. I think Spider Man Three almost gets to have its cake and eat it too with scenes like you know Peter saying, "Well, Aunt May, I got to tell you, Spider Man killed that guy that killed Uncle Ben. Aren't you happy about that? No. Why would I be happy about that? Another person's dead. Mm-hmm. That fucking sucks. Why would I be happy about that? That doesn't bring me any closure. Your uncle wouldn't have wanted that. I don't want that. Why would you want that?" And the film almost gets to have its cake and eat its too, but as Arthur pointed out earlier, it kind of shoots itself in the foot on uh, Peter's redemption arc because there's not enough time for it. He just gets rid of the black suit and he's a good guy again. Um, And as Dustin, you rightfully pointed out, that allows the film to say, well, Peter was always a good guy uh, and maybe there was a little bit of bad in him, but it, it only got bad because of the bad things around him. Right. Yeah. And so it, it, it's it, the same narrative of, of a few bad apples amongst the service uh, men and women uh, or just a, a bad situation. And if you were in there, you might have done – you know all the sort of ways in which we, we, we tend to excuse terrible behavior because the thing that is most precious, the thing that we cannot sort of begin to assail is do we really want to continue in this um, idea of putting aside our um, values to sublimate – Values to sublimate um, our ideals, to sublimate our desires, and um, to, to, to do that in the name of nationalism, the name of security. If we do that, you know, and if we say, "Wait a minute, maybe we should have done that in the first place. Maybe we should have held on to our values. Maybe, maybe Peter should have just settled down and married that girl." You know, um, that might have been a better way at at living life, and maybe that would have been responsible. I think it's important, too, to, you know, if, if you feel like Dustin's reaching at all, I do think it's important to keep in mind a production thing we didn't mention. Um, there are reshoots on Spider-Man 1 after 9-11 that add the scene of uh, the, the townsfolk, if you will, saying, you know, if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Uh, you know, we're all New Yorkers. You can't beat up on Spider-Man. We're going to throw stuff at you, Green Goblin. That's a reshoot thing. That yeah, is a thing that gets added the nail. In, a, yeah, in a time of serious national mourning and crisis. Um and that idea gets injected at a time when that's a you know a fairly innocuous thing is to just uh, everybody be together and be happy together, but it gets used for some straight up nightmares. The last thing I want to mention in terms of political reading is the need for secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, secrecy itself is um, predicated on the stuff being effective, and every time when things lose lose their way, every time every time the wheels fall off uh, for Spider Man is when people find out who he is. Is when people find out information, they know what's going on. When the public gets a, a better idea, and it would be better if the, the information that was going to the public was well controlled. You know, well controlled like Spider Man taking his own pictures of himself and distributing them to the media outlets. 
rather than allowing other people to uh, take those uh, pictures and to interpret them and to analyze them and to consider them in different kinds of ways. That um, that secrecy in terms of identity, that secrecy in terms of uh, the control of the information is part of what makes this thing work. J. Jonah Jameson's the secret hero of the Spider-Man trilogy. He's the only thing. <laughs> he's the only thing stopping Peter's ego from getting out of control in the first two movies. He is the one <laughs> reminding New Yorkers, "Fear this Ubermensch who can punch a hole in your chest. He's no good." He's the one. That's that's a fun thing. I, I mean, J. Jonah Jameson's a really interesting character, just as a whole, but especially as in as he's presented in these films. It does make Peter work, uh, and it makes him uh, work to be trusted. It makes him work to be a good guy, and I, I think you're right. When there, when there is a control of information as such that there's only one narrative and only one acceptable narrative, uh, it, it makes uh, checks and balances much harder to function. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a lot going on in the Spiders Men, is what I want to say. We um, we promised you, dear listener, last time when we broke this thing into two halves that you were going to get your money's worth with the next episode. Um, if we give ourselves six minutes or so to have introduced ourselves and got this party started, we've given you 60 minutes of analysis at this point. So we hope that you find that satisfactory. And we're going to move on to the last part of our show, and this the last part of this show, uh, which is our um, Elsa's or instead. Well, first of all, we, we make a judgment, right? We, we render this film to the shelf or these films rather uh to the shelf or in the trash and then we recommend our else's or instead accordingly i go to you first mr arthur gordon what do you say shelf or trash and then else or instead that's a tough one i think um i think purely for the historical significance of spider-man uh this film trilogy in in particular um i'm gonna shelf it I, i really am because without the success of this trilogy, especially Spider-Man 1 and 2, uh, we don't have the MCU like we know, if if at all. Um, and so I think it really, along with X-Men and along with Blade, it really bridged a, a, a or served as a turning point from, you know, Batman and Robin to the MCU. It's, it bridges that that era. And so I, I think just for that alone, I think it's worth it. And Spider-Man 2 is really good. It really is. It's very good. I like it. And there's a lot to like in the other two. So they're definitely uh, – you're not going to waste your money on watching these films. Um, else, I would say uh, Chronicle. Uh, Frank uh, Josh Trank's uh, kind of debut effort uh, has a similar idea. It's playing with that question of, you know – power and responsibility and, and you know what that looks like if you go down that other rabbit hole also uh, it is the live action version of akira yes uh it's it's it's, it's a good time dustin uh walked in on me watching it and he got hooked on it and took it home and watched the whole thing uh so watch chronicle i liked it a lot i i think there's a lot of parallels uh i you know a lot of people want to compare batman and iron man but i think uh batman and spidey are, are the closer parallel and so i think you watch uh you can watch batman begins or you can watch uh tim burton's batman uh either one uh will be uh, a good time uh and finally i'm going to go to bat for the amazing spider-man uh, Amazing Spider's Men, uh, the Garfield uh, version from you Sony. alone on this hill, and I want to hear about it because I've never seen either of these films. And I, I have time to watch them. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know, there's a lot of fat in both films that could be trimmed, uh, but I think once you get right down into the narrative and into the story, you have a very, very pure Spider-Man story. Um, I think Garfield is a great Spider-Man. He's not a great Peter Parker. He's kind of this weird skate punk. 
um, that I don't love, but you know, he gets to be Spider-Man. He gets to have the jokes. He gets to have the quips. He gets to have the fun action. And I think, uh, you know, they, they do a good job with that in both. Um, and, uh, there's a great arc with him and Gwen Stacy and they play the Stacy, uh, arc out like you'd expect if you've read the comics and I think it works. And so, uh, I like them. I like them both quite a bit. Uh, there's, like I said, there's a lot of fat. You know, they tried to do way too much in the Amazing Spider-Man Two. Uh, you know, they were trying to set up their own Spider-Man cinematic universe and the Sinister Six movie and all that stuff. And so there's way too much going on. Uh, but I think at the heart, there's a very good uh, Spider-Man story to be told. So I, I'd go to bat for either of those. All right, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Shelf or trash, else or instead? I mean, I think Arthur's right um, to the extent that, yeah, if, if you're going to talk about superhero films um, historically, you've got to talk about these films. And I, I think they're probably required viewing if you're going to have any kind of critical discourse about superhero uh, filmmaking as a genre, if you're going to try to engage with this genre of cinema in it as anything other than candy. I think these films are probably really important to that education. That said, I think Spider-Man 2 is the only film strong enough to really warrant uh, rewatch uh, more than once a decade. Uh, the only one probably worth taking up space on your shelf. So while I think all films um, have good things about them, even three, which we've we've kind of decided is unfairly maligned, uh, I, I think, again, we did six hours of analysis on these three films, and I six hours, 60 minutes of analysis on these three <laughs> films. We could have easily done two hours, um, I, I think. I think there was plenty to talk about. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're super important, definitely worth watching. But, yeah, I can only recommend Shelf uh, Spider-Man 2 just because the other ones are not that great on their own, honestly. I think uh, in a vacuum, they're not super entertaining anymore. I, I think uh, there's just a lot that doesn't work uh and there's enough that they're super fun and you you're not going to waste your money watching them you don't need to own them uh now what should you pair with these films what's going to broaden your horizons well we've talked a lot about sam sam raimi and i i just recently caught up with drag me to hell which i had never seen uh the the film that he made in the wake of the spider-man trilogy returning to his horror roots as it were what a what a film uh there's a lot there to like um the evolution of his uh i mean it's very much the same kind of horror movie that the evil dead films are in terms of the ways in which Sam Raimi uh, sets out to scare you. Um, I, I think there's a lot there to like. A lot of slapstick horror, which is a thing that only he does as far as I, I can't think of a whole lot of slapstick horror off the top of my head. Uh, there's probably some some real uh, you know B-movie grindhouse stuff that I'm not aware of that fits in that category. But I think Sam Raimi does it very well. And I, I think it's on very interesting display and Drag Me to Hell. Um, it's not a film without its problems, both uh, in terms of structure and just problematic uh, narrative tropes. But uh, I, I think it's really worth your time, really interesting. I would also check it out, um, as Arthur uh, so gleefully did, uh, The Quick and the Dead. I'm really glad you liked that movie, Arthur. Really glad you made time for it, uh, because I think it's a really interesting film just in his filmography overall, but also on its own. Removed from Sam Raimi, removed from critical context, it's just a badass Western. It's, it is. It's a really great Western. It's a good time. Uh, and one of the only few Westerns I can think of that has a female gunslinger. Um, and uh, who gets... Sharon Stone is so good in that movie. Yeah. yeah. She is aces. Uh, other than, you know, yeah, there's young Johnny... Uh, Johnny Depp. Leo. There's young Leonardo DiCaprio, which I think is a, a lot of what people use to sell that movie. You've also got a really young uh, Russell Crowe in there, too, and a really great Gene Hackman. Yeah. A lot of great character actors making cameos. I think it's a really fun film. Yep. Uh, finally, um, 
coming out the same year as Spider-Man 2, I think you should check out Hellboy. Um, the first Hellboy uh, from Guillermo del Toro is really kind of an interesting counterpoint, not just to Spider-Man, but re- really to a lot of superhero movies because it does dabble in the same territory as Spider-Man. It, what if the whole world always assumed you were a bad guy because of the way you looked, and how does that inform how you're going to be a good guy? Uh, and how does the deeds you do define you as a person over uh, the conditions of your birth, the conditions of your life. Uh, how do the ways you put yourself on the line for other people define who you are? I think Hellboy is really a great superhero film, and I think especially it's great when you look at it in context with other superhero films. So that that's the last thing that I would recommend pairing with this trilogy. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am going to say trash. Um, I like the movies. Don't get me wrong. I think you should see them. I don't think you should buy them. Um, that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, really, that's just what it comes down to. I mean, they're they're fine. But, you know, I think you need to be better than fine. They're not must-owns. Yeah, to add to the library. I would argue that Spider-Man 2 is that good of a superhero movie i think it really is about as good as that kind of film could be uh but i see why you would trash all yeah. of them yeah yeah it's like no i know no. I, see, I see the choice watch them all um but don't buy them borrow them you know rent them do something else but yeah don't do the other uh what i would say you should watch um instead I, I'm, I'm thinking about my particular reading of it with uh naomi uh klein and the shock doctrine um, I think you got to watch the Battle of Chile, uh, which is a documentary uh, filmed in the streets about the uh, the uh, coup in Venezuela, uh, September eleventh, nineteen seventy four, uh, which uh, was a, a democratically elected uh, socialist president, Salvador Allende, uh, was uh, executed or committed suicide or whatever uh, over the course of a couple days of a war led by uh, Augusto Pinochet, who began a reign of terror, um, disappearing thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and uh, began uh, to apply Milton Friedman's uh, sort of uh, economic policies as well through that particular kind of shock. So I think it it frames pretty well uh, some of the ideas that I was talking about and sort of gives you some... uh something to sort of look at cinematically rather than just simply uh, recommending Naomi Klein's book, um, Shock um, Doctrine, uh, for that. Um, In addition to that, in terms of the pursuit of the bad guy and wrestling with those questions of light and dark, I think you got to watch Zero Dark Thirty uh, instead. And uh, I think that would be, uh, which with a female superhero. um, No doubt. With problems. And And a film that I think, you know, as we've talked about uh, things we justify in the name of safety, I think a film that gets unfairly maligned for not doing that, uh, when that literally is all the movie's about. It's just, it's so, it's a film that it's all subtext. Yeah. It is all subtext, that movie, and I think that it's easy to assume it's saying things that it's not saying because of that. And so it's complicated, and I like the complication. I think that is a good thing about that particular film. Um, Ambiguity is sometimes a helpful thing to wrestle with the tough questions. So uh, that is my recommend, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. I hope you enjoyed the special two-parter edition of the Good Trash Genre Cast. I guess we're going to do one more show, though. Yeah, just the one more. One more. And um, Catherine Bigelow is coming back up. Yeah. You're, you mentioned her, and we're going to go uh, back to her roots. We're going to look at The Loveless, uh, which is her feature debut. She co-wrote, co-directed. Uh, very excited. It is also the feature debut, as far as we can tell, of one Willem Dafoe. Nice. Willem um, So uh, we get to see uh, Catherine Bigelow's take on a uh, motorcycle gang run amok in a small town. Give me those cheekbones and a leather jacket, please. It is right up our alley in all the ways, I think. And so uh, 
We're going to have ourselves a good old time. I've recently read uh, Hunter S. Thompson's History of the Hell's Angels, so that's going to be fun times. I'm I'm excited about this. uh, We're definitely going to talk about that next week. Yeah. Shit, we're going to talk about that. And if you want to do some additional homework, I I, I hear it's a bit of a take on the wild ones. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the biker movie. Yeah. yeah. And there's a whole slew of these biker exploitation films in the 60s and 70s. So, yeah. So uh, you might put that under your belt as well if you get time, dear listener. So uh, there you go, dear listener. We're going to do that. We're going to keep on having this conversation because that's what makes watching the movies so worthwhile. Dalton and I put these movies in the trash, and yet we've spoken for like two and a half hours um, together with these two episodes about these two films because that's what makes watching the films worthwhile. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I am so high. I can hear ever. Thank you for turning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For more Good Trash content, head over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro is a custom piece of work from friend of the show, Aaron Rogers. And our outro this week is, of course, Chad Kroger, Josie Scott, Hero. Cheers, we all